So globalism with Israel back in the land will be a mark of the final days before Jesus comes. And there will be apostasy. Now we're going to look at a particular expression of apostasy this morning. The apostasy. But to have the apostasy, seeds of apostasy need to be sown. And that's what's happening in our day. Seeds of apostasy are being sown. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Man of Sin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. This verse of scripture informs us that when the Antichrist is released, there will be deception, delusion, and damnation. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Now, beyond how the Antichrist is revealed, secondly, let's think about how the Antichrist is restrained, how he's restrained. Verse 6, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, as much as Satan wants to bring his program to earth, the man of sin, the Antichrist, is restrained from doing so by the restrainer. So who or what is the restrainer? Now, Paul didn't have to spell it out for the church at Thessalonica. Why? Because they already knew. He was there three weeks left, which in light of their questions tells you that a lot of what Paul taught them was prophetic in nature. He preached prophecy. Only there three weeks. I guess prophecy was important to him. He says, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. So God's apostle doesn't explain to them because he knows they already know. So how can we know? Well, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And there's basically three prevalent interpretations as to who the restrainer is that's worth your time. There's only one that's obviously correct, but three that are worth your time, and then there's a host of others that are just weird. So let me give you the three main arguments in the history of the church that people have used to identify the restrainer. One, some would say the restrainer is human government. The restrainer is human government. And it's argued based on Romans 13 that describes government as God's tool to restrain evil. Look, it's not smart to defund the police. It's just not even smart to take their sword away and to disrespect them so that nobody wants to serve as a cop. And I hope you realize there's like huge recruiting problems, not just in our state, but across the United States because people don't want to take the job if they're going to be spit on and mocked and disrespected. I mean, who would want it? But certainly it's not human government. First of all, human governments often do not fulfill their God-ordained responsibility. Instead of curbing evil, sometimes they help to spread it. Second, according to both the books of Daniel and the Revelation, the Antichrist is the head of a one-world super government, and he'll bring hell on earth. 
So the instrument that indeed will bring the great tribulation, I don't think is the instrument that will prevent it from coming. And third, the restrainer, if you look carefully, is described by two pronouns in the Greek New Testament is reflected here in the New American Standard. You should circle them. In verse six, the Apostle Paul speaks of what restrains him. Circle the word what. And in verse seven, he speaks of who restrains him. Circle the word who. So clearly, Paul's explanation at least includes a person by the pronoun who and not simply a government. Well, wanting to be faithful to the text and to the pronouns, a second view that has been held is the restrainer is an angel. The restrainer is an angel. The only problem with that interpretation, if you were here when we covered the book of Jude, Jude 9 teaches when Michael, the archangel, the greatest and highest and holiest and mightiest of all God's angels, when he confronts Satan, the Bible says he did not dare in his own power to try to control him. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. The mightiest of all God's angels did not try to restrain Satan. So to say that the restrainer is an angel really has no biblical precedent. And there are many problems, and I should tell you that the first two views are held by amillennialists because they already believe the tribulation has been fulfilled during the time of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They didn't take the past view, the preterist view. They took the historical view that it was being fulfilled, and that's why they said, oh, the Pope there, he's the Antichrist. And so their theology forces them to come to these conclusions because they deny there's a future for Israel because it appeared that God was doing nothing with Israel for 1,900 years, but how wrong they were. So the third view, I think, helps us to understand that the restrainer is God the Holy Spirit. I think a decision as to the identity of the restrainer can be made by just asking and answering the question, who is powerful enough to hold back Satan? And the obvious answer is God, the Holy Spirit. And I believe he is clearly the restrainer for a number of reasons. First of all, during the days of the Old Testament, he was seen as restraining sin. In Genesis 6-3, Moses recorded, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not remain or not strive with man forever. And you know that when God's patience in Noah's day was exhausted, what followed? The great flood. And we've already learned in this series that Jesus parallels his return from heaven with the days of Noah. And indeed, when the Holy Spirit of God stops restraining, judgment will fall in the next seven years that will unfold. So look at verse seven. I want you to notice verse seven. It says here, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So even though the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, he's called the spirit of Antichrist in scripture, he is someday going to be embodied. But the reason his embodiment has not fleshed itself out in time and space, according to the apostle Paul, is because of this restrainer. There's a restraint, but someday his restraint will be removed. Now, the first reason, I think, for believing the Spirit of God is the restrainer is because of the parallel between what he did in Noah's day and what he will do in a future day. But secondly, is because of the pronouns, as I've already noted. 
In verse six, it speaks of what restrains him. And in verse seven, who restrains him? Now think your way through this. In verse six, he uses the neutral pronoun, what? And in verse six, he uses the masculine pronoun, he. So, there's only one person in all of Scripture who can be described with both a neuter or neutral pronoun and a masculine pronoun, and that is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, pneumatos, spirit, is a neuter word, and so sometimes pneumatos is modified with the word it. Of course, Jesus breaks all the rules in John 14 through 16 because he speaks of pneumatos, the spirit, but then he speaks of him as a he. Why? Because he wants to underscore that he's not some power, he's not some force, he is a living person. And sadly, I think a lot of young children are quite confused now through the Star Wars series, when it came out in the 1970s, the uh, author of Star Wars, who wrote the books in which the movies was done, was a pantheist. He's still alive, at least the last time I looked. And his goal, as written in his own book, was to spread pantheism. And so I've talked to some little children sometimes, and they talk about the good force and the evil force, and man, they got it all wrong. It's not some force. We're talking about a warfare between a holy God and the evil one. So in verse 6, the Apostle Paul is referring to the Spirit's instrument. He indwells the church. And so the church is going to be caught up, will be removed. And his restraint through the church will stop. Now, I know in the New King James, they take the word he and they capitalize it. Capital he. Now, that's interpretive. I think they're right, but it's still interpretive because in the Greek text, there's no capital or lowercase distinction. It's either all uppercase or all lowercase, and the reader has to supply who is involved, and when it's God, clearly God, they always put it. But to give freedom here so that people can discern for themselves, it's in the lowercase. But understand, the Spirit of God is restraining sin right now in the church. And when he is removed, there'll be no dissenting voices. No one to speak up against evil. And the rottenness of corruption will spread like it has never spread before. And it will leave freedom for this worldwide leader to come to the forefront. Now, we are still called to be salt and light. That's why I ask you to take this card when you leave today and call this. Because one of these three people, who I will leave unnamed, is planning to filibuster. He did it once before for two weeks. And through his communication with Planned Parenthood and another pro-abort group, he's planning to filibuster it. And undo what God's people fought to protect. Another senator here in this card, she's not even planning to show up. Now, she replaced my senator because where I live, I'm represented by a particular senator. And that the senator I was once represented by, I called him and pled with him for 30 minutes on the phone because he was a pastor. On three occasions, he stopped the pro-life bill from ever getting out on the floor for a vote. 
I said, well, you've obviously got your congregation buffaloed because your secretary, your personal assistant told me you were pro-life. But as the chair of that committee, you've stopped it on three occasions. I said, if you are a Christian, you're going to meet God in his divine discipline. But it's very difficult for me to think that someone who's regenerated by the Spirit of God, who's a new creature who has the mind of Christ, can be in favor of abortion. And just a few short weeks later, a young man tragically went into his church and shot him and eight other people. Look, we need to speak up. We're not greasing the skids to bring in the second coming. We still speak up. But understand, there is coming a time when we won't be able to speak up because the church will be caught up, we will be removed, and the restrainer, through his instrument of restraint, will stop. Now, by the way, this is again an argument for the pre-tribulation rapture, and there are many, because if the instrument that the Spirit restrains through, the church is removed, he doesn't leave us. Jesus said when you, that when the Spirit comes, he'll be in you forever. Paul said when you hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you're sealed with the Spirit of God, and you're sealed for the day of redemption, so he never leaves you. But there is a sense in which there is a reverse Pentecost in that the spirit in the church is removed. Now, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. We'll see he still has a ministry on the earth during that time. But he'll be taken away. Then verse 8 says, that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That happens at the second coming. So let's be clear here. These verses are not teaching that at the rapture, the Holy Spirit is gone because he's omnipresent. And he will bring people to the Savior during this seven-year period. And men need to be convicted by the Spirit of God to have their eyes opened. But the born-again, baptized, and dwelled body of Christ will be gone. And with it will come chaos and a perfect atmosphere for a one world leader. That brings me to the final point very quickly, how the Antichrist is released. We'll only spend a moment on it because we're going to spend more time on this. I want you to notice his release will come on three levels. First, his release will come with deception. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. Now, again, I think it's an exaggeration to say that the Antichrist is the incarnation of Satan like Jesus is the incarnation of the Father. But he will, like the son of perdition, Judas, be indwelt by him, and he will come with powers and signs and false wonders. He is speaking in verse 1 of the Lord Jesus, and in verse 9, he speaks of the Antichrist, and he uses the same word, coming, the parousia. We speak of the coming of Christ, verse 1. Well, here in verse 9, he speaks of the coming of the lawless one. Why? Because he mimics Jesus. In addition, in chapter 1 and verse 7, Jesus is going to be revealed with his mighty angels and flaming fire when he will deal out retribution. We're here in chapter 2 and verses 3, 6, and 8. The lawless one is described as being revealed. Again, he comes to notice, according to verse 8, with power, 
signs and false wonders. That's precisely how the Lord Jesus is described. Remember on Pentecost, Peter stood up and he said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus in Nazarene, a man attested you by God with powers and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Look at verse nine. This Antichrist is the one whose coming is accord with the activity of Satan. How? With all power and signs and false wonders. The three identical words used to describe Jesus are used to describe the Antichrist. There are different words that God gives in the New Testament that describes when he breaks the laws that he wrote into the universe. One is called miracle. It's the word dunamis. We get our word dynamite. And when God wants to underscore the power of a miracle, he uses the word dunamis. That's used of the Antichrist. The second word is sign or samion. And it refers to a miracle with a message. And so John loves this word especially. And so in his gospel, he records seven signs or miracles with a message behind them, five that are unique to his gospel. And so when the Antichrist comes with miracles, there'll be a message behind some of them. And then the third word is wonder. It's the word teros. And it's the word for miracle that produces a sense of awe, like can you imagine when the Red Sea is split in two and you walk through and these huge walls of water, as the text says? Oh, wow. That will be the response. When Satan's man comes, because he comes to mimic Christ, he comes with deception. Secondly, his release will be followed by delusion, by delusion. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. So first of all, it's clear that those who are deluded are those who had an opportunity to receive Jesus, but they did not respond. Verse 11, notice, begins with the words, and for this reason, it's looking back to verse 10. For what reason? These who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So behind this great delusion is this great refusal. People refuse the Lord. It's the same thing in John three nineteen. Jesus reminded us, some people will not come to the light because they love. Agapao, same word in John 3, 16 that describes God's love. They willfully love and choose their evil deeds. Verse 12 says these people took pleasure in wickedness. So the Bible is clear that God will send a strong delusion, as the King James renders it, to those who did not receive or believe the truth. People ask me, will people be saved during the tribulation? Yes, they will. We've already studied that. You say, well, how will they get saved? Well, the Spirit of God will be at work. And as Revelation 7 indicates, he's going to convert 144,000 Jewish evangelists or missionaries. He's going to have two witnesses up on the Temple Mount, and there's going to be an angel that preaches the gospel. And John, after he sees the witness of the 144,000, sees a grand number from every tribe, tongue, and nation that you can't even count like the sands of the seashore. Jesus said it this way, this gospel of the kingdom shall preach to the whole world and then the end shall come. He's talking about what's going to happen during the seven-year period. The gospel will go to every single people group in the world and people will hear and some will be saved from all of them. Now finally, his release will result in damnation. 
his release will result in damnation. According to verse 12, God is going to allow this great delusion. God will bring it in order that, here's the reason, that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. If you do not receive Christ on this side of the rapture, I can promise you anyone here within the sound of my voice, you're hearing a gospel preacher. You'll have no excuse. I'm not talking about for some aborigine in Papua New Guinea. I'm talking about people who have heard the plan of salvation. People say, well, you know, they'll have a chance to get saved. It'll just be really difficult because so many Christians are going to get their heads cut off. And if you won't receive Christ in this day, it will be really hard to receive Christ in that day. No, you won't receive Christ if you've heard the gospel with power and clarity and you said no. Jesus teaches the same truth in John 12. It can even happen in this day. They may be judged who took pleasure in wickedness. Paul has already said in 2 Corinthians 1.9 that these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Now, it's not God's desire, but the whole process here is grimly logical. First, they took pleasure in wickedness, and so they make sin their deliberate choice. Second, they refuse to receive the love of the truth. Third, the activity of Satan gets in them and deceives them. And so they experience a strong delusion and they believe, literally it says, the lie. They believe the lie, that the Antichrist is who he claims to be. And so it's a slippery slope and it begins with a love for sin. And that love for sin leads to a rejection of the truth. And that leads to deception. And that leads to a hardening of the heart and ultimately eternal condemnation. Today is the day to be saved. How are we going to apply this text? Let me suggest three applications. Number one, we must never forget that Satan can deceive even believers. Remember, he's writing to believers who had miscalculated the rapture And so they were knocked off kilter and they were shaken. And really the only defense against deception is the Bible. I meet Christians who are all rattled and one guy came in so upset and thought because he had gotten the vaccine, he had taken the mark of the beast. Now whether you should have taken the vaccine, that's another story. But it was not the mark of the beast. And so sound theology helps us not to be so quickly deceived. And the only place to get that is in the word. That's why pastors are supposed to open the word. Not for three minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, not a bunch of stories. My preaching is short compared to early colonial America where the sermons were rarely less than two hours. Secondly, we must never forget our urgency in sharing with the lost. Too many Christians are involved in trying to reform society through politics and education. 
There's nothing wrong with being salt and light. When we stand up for what's right, we're holding up God's standard, and the law is God's school teacher to lead people to faith. When they say the standard, transgenderism is evil, homosexuality is wrong, marriage, extramarital sex is evil, premarital sex is evil, drunkenness is evil, greed is evil, abortion is wrong. And people see that, it brings conviction, and that, well, how can I be forgiven? through Jesus. So we need to remember that our primary goal is to preach the gospel. The solutions to the problems in this nation is not, they're not found in the White House, they're found in the church house. We're to take as many people into the kingdom that we can. Third and finally, we must never forget that the heart is deceitfully wicked. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Have you trusted Christ? Paul was uncertain about some of the Corinthians who had made a public confession, had been baptized, and he exhorts them in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Peter exhorted people in 2 Peter 1, 10. He said, be sure of your calling and election. Jesus spoke of a broad way and a wide gate that led to destruction and a narrow gate and a small road that leads to life. And he did it in the context of people who said we're Christians. In fact, he didn't go for some ho-hum kind of testimony. We preached in your name. We did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Three things unbelievers can do. But Jesus will say, I never knew you. They were not truly of the faith. So the time to examine yourself is now. It's too late after the rapture. Do you love sin? I didn't say do you sin, but do you love sin? If you have an appetite for the things of the world, probably means you've never met the living God. And so we are living in a day where sin is growing, it is multiplying, and we must choose sides. Examine your own hearts. Make sure you be of the faith. And if you know you're not, today would be the day. Look, none of us know either personally or prophetically how much time we have. So the time to be ready is right now. Holy Father, I thank you for what the Apostle Paul wrote by the Spirit of God's inspiration that we could study it today and do some personal inventory. I pray for those who are listening in Grays and Graniteville on the internet or some who will listen this through various broadcasts in different parts of the world. I pray for each and every one who is unsure whether heaven is really their home, that they would call upon Jesus, believe in his finished work, for you promised because he did what he did and died for all of our sin and you raised him that if we'll call on him, you will instantly and eternally save us. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us, Father, to be faithful in urging men and women and boys and girls to receive Jesus. Help us be faithful with the stewardship of the gospel. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. If you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Remember that you can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. 
And if you missed any of our previous messages and would like to order your own copy, give us a call at 877-787-7478 and request program God's Prophetic Schedule 013. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.